into chapter 11 uh, we kind of did the the basics uh, as far as what's going on in the chapter uh, and this is the beginning of a new of the of the third group of themes uh, and uh, uh, John makes this in typical fashion uh, with a sacramental element to it and uh, by noting that there is a, a Passover connected to it um, and I kind of touched on all of that stuff last week, but I wanted to go back and um, uh, kind of touch on it again, uh, just just to, you know refresh memories, but also make the best argument I can for this uh, uh, to justify this. Um, uh, but before I, I start on that, can I go ahead and get a volunteer for for the drive-by readings today? Nick volunteers. Thank you, Nick. <clears throat> okay, so to to uh, to re reestablish uh, the uh, uh, the premise here, we need to go back to chapter ten and uh, review uh, uh, verses forty and uh, through forty two. That's at the very end of the chapter. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Okay, so John, there was no reason for John to say, John, uh, the apostle to say, Jesus is going back. Jesus went to the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. John's history, John's ancient history at this point, he's long gone. There's no reason for John to, to even bring that up. Just as in uh, verse 128, where he's, uh, John has just been speaking about the Christ, and John the Apostle says these things were done in Bethany, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. There's no reason for John, the apostle, to have brought it up then either. But there must be a reason. <laughs> there must be a reason. Uh, Arthur W. Pink, in his commentary on this, on this verse, says, the, the Holy Spirit led John to note the, uh, the location of all this, and it, is, it behooves us to try to discern why even if we can't come up with a good answer. Well, I think I've got a good answer. John was baptizing uh, there. John, uh, John the Apostle puts it in context of Bethany because Lazarus's resurrection is a baptism. It is, it is uh, a fuller symbol of uh, death and resurrection in Christ than even water baptism is. Okay, so we've got in verses uh, 10, 
uh, or in chapter 10, 40 through 42, we've got the phrase, where John was baptizing. In 128, we've got the phrase, beyond where John was baptizing. In uh, then extending into chapter 11, in verse uh, 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. We've got the actual reference to Bethany. In 128, we have an actual reference to Bethany. Um, in uh, chapter uh, 11, we see that uh, in verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. We've got a burial. And in verses 43 and 44, um, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out or come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave claws and his face was, was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So, and then in verse 128, we've got John the Baptist baptizing. Now, we all know, because we're scholars, John was engaged in the baptism of repentance. But the water baptism, the believer's baptism, is, is baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a symbol of our death and our resurrection in Christ. So... Uh, that's that's the puzzle. That's the the puzzle of verse of uh, one twenty eight, uh, and I think that's a good answer. Um, and I've got more, but I'll stop there in case anybody wants to say something. About the Bethany. About the Bethany. About any of that. Robinson says Bethany is on the southeast slope of uh, uh, Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. Yeah. And it's now called El Azariah mm-hmm. after Lazarus' name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the Arabic name for Lazarus. Mount of Olives, yeah. At the end times, God comes down onto Mount of Olives. Right. And splits. Mm-hmm. So I just noticed that. Yeah. Oh, I never really thought about these details. Themes are will make you do that. <laughs> All right, Nick, if you could read uh, verse thirty-nine of chapter eleven. Yeah, yeah. Jesus said, "Take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days." Yes. Yeah, so Lazarus' body has entered into corruption. This is what makes him different from the other resurrections uh, that Jesus performed. Also, the resurrections connected to Elijah and Elisha. Uh, There were three in the Old Testament, but those were all people who had died recently. Lazarus was starting. He had rigor mortis had set in and his tissues were decaying. Uh, so this is like the man who was born blind. When Jesus raises him, it's a creative uh, miracle. He's creating new tissue to replace what is already uh, gone, started to got rot, to, to put a Quite word to right. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And this is the, the corruption in Lazarus's body is a spiritual equivalent to uh, the full-on corruption of our sin and sin nature. As uh, Isaiah said, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Uh, We've probably all had the experience of finding the rag that fell behind the washing machine and it's a crumpled mush mess. It's it's turning to dust on the outside. On the inside, it's still damp. It stinks to high heaven. You know, there's nothing to do but bury it. This is the unclean garment of Isaiah. And these are our righteousnesses. So there's a mystery to water baptism. And somehow it is it is our participation somehow in the uh, elimination of the filthy rags and uh, the creation of new flesh and hearts of flesh. As a sacrament, that is what allows you to be able to take the next sacrament, which is communion. Yeah. You can't take communion, really, until you've had the first. That's the command, you know. I mean, that's why you can understand why we would say communion is open to those who have been mm-hmm. Right. And it's, you know, every now and then you'll run up against somebody who says, you know, when I was baptized, I didn't really understand what was going on. I think I need to be rebaptized. Nobody understands it. Nobody understands it. There's, there's a reason why this is the first thing you do as a believer uh, because it's a mystery and you're not supposed to understand it. Or you're just supposed to do it and believe it. So Christ delivers life to him who has none. Uh, and the same, this is the same way we go into baptism. We have no life. All we have is death. And uh, uh, so Lazarus' burial, burial and resurrection is a model of baptism. Can I ask a question? Uh, I had seen this morning, uh, it surprised me in 2 Corinthians 5 and 4. Um, and it says, For we that are in this tabernacle be grown, uh, being burdened, uh, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. Mm-hmm. And it just struck me as, you know, this corruption. At the, you know, when we get our glorified body, yeah, it's clothed upon, and it's a little bit related to something you were saying about the dog inside of you. you well, I just never in my life noticed that. Yeah, I think I think he's simply you know saying that we don't really long for death. We don't. We're not looking forward that day that we can cast off this tent. Uh, we're looking for the new clothing, the righteous clothing. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, a lot of Christians have no idea that it's like a three-act play. You know, we've got life here, and then we die, and we go to heaven, and that's the end of it. No, you know, that's the, that's the second act. The third act is a bodily resurrection, and that's just missing in a lot of 
I guess I just had it in my mind that we get a new glorified body, but this almost is like we were clothed on what was. Well, I think I, 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 you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get in over my head, but I, I, I think it's these bodies. I mean, the the sea gives up its dead. I think we get these bodies, but they are, you know, perfectly, uh, you know, righteous and holy as we were created to be. Just a thought here, but I mean, when we believe in Christ, I mean, we do receive the Holy Spirit and I mean there is kind of a newness involved mm. with us although yeah. sin still dwells in the flesh and right. that's going to be a problem yeah we get into that problem yeah. well let me move on here I've got some quotes about baptism first one is from a guy named Paul oh, <laughs> it's from <laughs> Romans 6 Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the body by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Here's one from Charles Spurgeon. And it's a commentary on Romans 6, uh, 3 and 4. I am content to take the view that baptism signifies the burial of believers in water in the name of the Lord, and I shall so interpret the text. My burial with Christ means not only that he died for me, but that I died with him, so that my death with him needs a burial with him. We have come as far as death and burial, but baptism, according to the text, represents also resurrection. Uh, Then the last one here, John Chris Austin. In baptism are fulfilled the pledges of our covenant with God, burial and death, resurrection and life. And these take place all at once. For when we immerse our heads in the water, the old man is buried as in a tomb below and wholly sunk forever. Then as we raise them again, the new man rises in its stead. As it is easy for us to dip and to lift our heads again, so it is easy for God to bury the old man and to show forth the new. And so it was easy for Christ to go to the rotting corpse of Lazarus and bring him back with a new life. So, that's my argument. Uh, What's the argument? The argument is that the resurrection of Lazarus is a sacramental element of John's third theme of his gospel. Uh, So he began with the wine from the wedding of Cana to the bread of the feeding of the 5,000, the elements of the Eucharist, and now he's he's taking uh, baptism. uh, to begin his his uh, this um, new uh, theme, which is God the Son. So that's the end of that. <laughs> Are there any any other thoughts or questions before we move on? Okay, Nick, if you could read verse forty three, please. When he, 
when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Okay, so God the Son. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, not in the name of the Father or in the name of the Trinity. He does it on his own authority. Uh, And he gets immediate obedience. Now, this is actually a pattern in this in this uh, in this chapter, because uh, we see earlier on that somehow Martha finds out he's coming. He is approaching Bethany. She gets up and runs out to meet him. All right. There is something about knowing that he is on the horizon that is saying to her, come. And she comes. And and they have their little interaction. Then she runs back and tells Mary, he's asking for you. Mary gets up. She stops what she's doing. She gets up and she comes. So we, we get these calls with immediate obedience and and then it tops it off with Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Is that good? This you know we can we can go back to uh, ver, uh, verse five twenty two again. The Father has given all uh, judgment to the Son. You know he is he is his own authority here. Okay, Nick, uh, if you could read uh, 48 through 53, please. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should. He said that he, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Okay, so Caiaphas was the high priest, but he was not his own authority. He uh, spoke only uh, because God gave it to him. Uh, God was speaking through Caiaphas. So we have a uh, contrast between Jesus and Caiaphas. Uh, Jesus has his own authority to do, to say and, and do, command whatever he wants. And Caiaphas does not, even though he is the high priest. And this will play out fully uh, in chapter 21, the epilogue, when Jesus takes on his own high priesthood. Uh, so we can also compare. Uh, oops, went the wrong way. Next chapter, chapter twelve, verse ten. Right? Yeah. Um, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. So we've got them plotting to kill Jesus and plotting to kill Lazarus. The the testimony of his of his authority. Say anything. <laughs> no, he was wrong place, wrong time. How many times? Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly. Right. I mean, at that point, it's old hat to Lazarus. He's already, he's already done it once. 
Um, so the priests, all they have to offer is death. Jesus calls a man out of a tomb alive, but all the priests have is death. So, uh, and that is common for mankind, you know, to, to have the power of death over somebody is the most power you can have. Uh, that's why we, we pretend that it's limited to the law. But only God has the power to give somebody life. Well, they're operating out of fear as well, too. Afraid to leave their Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's highly political, yeah. or a big, a big political element to it. All right, uh, Nick, if you could read uh, verse fifty-four. Okay. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Okay, so John has kind of changed his approach now. It, uh, throughout the first uh, ten chapters, there would be an event, and then Jesus would follow that up with teaching based on that event. There's no teaching after this. Instead, instead of engaging in the debate again, Jesus simply withdraws. Uh, under the theme of God the Son, he is above debate now, and he is going to focus on his followers. Not, he's no longer going to engage with the people who do not believe him like he has before. Now he's going to focus on his followers. And again, this, this touches on his high priesthood. So, any, any thoughts about that? Or any, anything that we have said so far? Okay, well, uh, Nick, then if you could read verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up in the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Yes, so here is John making his you know, actual uh, uh, reference to Passover. And we all know what Passover this is. And I, I feel fairly certain that we can say this is the beginning of a definite chronology. Uh, it seems like the raising of Lazarus was probably uh, very close to this time. Um, but who can really know? Uh, uh, if it was a week or a month or six months or who knows. But anyway, we've got... We've got this notice that the Passover was at hand, and this is definitely the uh, Christ last, the end of the Passovers. <laughs> he specifically so, says what Passover is for for most people, too, right there. Cleansing himself. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting, you know, we tie it into what happened with the cleansing of baptism. So to wrap this up then, uh, we have here the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, uh, and now the signs are over. Uh, and uh, John starts to deal with realities. The, the no, no longer are we going to be doing things, or is Jesus doing things that are, that are symbols or foreshadowings? They are, he's going to start doing the real thing, the real work. And uh, then we have our sacramental element, 
as John always does, you know, as he starts a new theme. And uh, so we're ready to move on to chapter 12. So are, are there any final thoughts about um, Lazarus or, ch- or chapter 11 or anything? Colin? Did you, did you, I came in a little late, did you draw attention to the fact that not only does Christ raise Lazarus up, but he has him take off the garments of death too? You were talking about being clothed in Christ. Uh, we read that, but okay. uh, didn't, didn't yeah. really make any commentary on it. it. Uh, John draws attention to that in the story. That yeah. Part of the story is him taking off the burial clothes. Well, and also a very interesting thing is when John and Peter go into the tomb, John notes that the the grave clothes have all been laid aside and the napkin over his face is neatly folded. That's what I wanted to ask about. In verse 44 it says his face was bound about with a napkin. Mm -hmm. And specifically here, Lazarus. And the only other time I remember hearing such a thing was in the chapter twenty, where it talks about yeah, so there, there's there's I mean, there's the significance of the napkin separate from the I have no idea nor nor why it was folded neatly. Well, I, agree, I, mean, <laughs> I agree with these. I, I think we didn't quite spend enough time on verse forty four. Well, I mean, we're doing a thematic study here, okay. so I mean, I mean, we could we could stop at any verse <laughs> and spend a whole day there, but you know, I mean, obviously there are details. What I'm hoping is that this overview type of look will enhance the verse-by-verse study okay. that we partake in as we go on. Okay. Um, but, I mean, that might be something worth, uh, you know, me looking into more. Well, I just, people <laughs> were mentioning being clothed in Christ earlier. And I thought, well, there, there it is right there mm-hmm. in, the symbol, in the symbolism of the story. It's, yeah. yeah. Taking off the old man. Right, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that ties together with Paul's statement about the, the, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, let's move on to chapter 12. Would you like to continue to read? Sure. All right, so what happens in chapter 12? Mary anoints Christ. Mary anoints Christ. What else? The triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. What else? Uh, Some Gentiles. Yes, the Greek seeking audience. What we have here is three events and three related uh, themes. So, uh, the first theme, which will go with Mary anointing Jesus. Uh, Why did the Logos come? He came to offer himself as Messiah and all that that entails, including worship and rejection. So, uh, Nick, if you could read 12, 3 through 5. <coughs> Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Okay, so compare Mary and Judas. They're at, at like the furthest parts of the spectrum that you could get. Mary's act was one of worship, which Judas rejected. And within Judas' rejection was also accusation, which is the role of Satan, and deceit, because John tells us he just wanted the money 
to be in the purse because he was a thief. Uh, and deceit is also the realm of Satan. He is the father of lies. And this contrast is a microcosm uh, of the Jews as a whole. Uh, we got verses uh, 37 and 42. If you could read those two. Yeah. 37 and 42? Yes. Okay. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So we've got got this contrast among among, uh, the Jewish people. You've got some who believe and some who don't. Some who call him, you know, the spawn of Beelzebub and others who say, well, I mean, who could this be but the Christ? So there's there's, uh, Judas is a microcosm of Judah, which is a microcosm of all mankind. There's there's uh, disagreement. Uh, okay, uh, Nick, if you could read, if you could jump back and read verse seven. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial." All right. So her act is proclaiming Jesus' death and burial, and this is what Paul says of the Eucharist: uh, We are. Uh, proclaiming his death until he returns, um, and this this event leads directly into the triumphal entry, which begins at uh, verse twelve, and that that kicks off the work of the cross, uh, which is which you know the midpoint is Christ's burial, and it leads to the next theme, which is. Uh, again, we could ask ourselves, why did the uh, Logos come? He came to manifest himself as Prince of Peace as opposed to the conquering king. And therefore, his entry into Jerusalem upon a donkey. So, Nick, if you could uh, read 12, 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, and behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, so a donkey is a symbol of a king who is secure in his kingdom and in his authority. <clears throat> And he's not riding a war horse to conquer a kingdom or even to defend one. He is absolutely secure in his power and place. And this is, uh, of course, it, it cites Zechariah 9 9 as uh, the end of that, of what Nick just wrote. But compare that to Revolution, Revelation 19 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Wow. So this is how Christ shows up at Armageddon. And all he does is show up, and that's the end of it. But when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was in his kingdom already. Uh, and this is uh, 
the kingdom of heaven. It is that aspect of even now in the kingdom of God. Even now, but not yet. The kingdom of heaven is even now. And even now, Christ is king of his kingdom. And it is the church. It is the the, uh, nation of kings and priests. Um. So, any any thoughts about that? Well, not just a donkey, but a donkey's coat. Yeah, it's even more confident. Yeah, and and, and more humble. Yeah, yeah. That's and more detailed. Yeah, more detailed. So he is in his he is king of his kingdom now. I have a reference here to sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So it's not, I'm going to overcome the world. I have, and it is so that we can have peace, as he is the Prince of Peace. Now, Scripture talks about peace three ways. There is peace with God. That is, we are no longer at enmity with God because of our sin. God has bridged that gap through Christ. So we uh, believers are at peace with God. Then there is the peace of God. And that uh, one definition I found was the harmony and calmness of body, mind, and spirit, trusting in the power and grace of God. This is what gets you through tribulation and stuff uh, and keeps you from panicking, keeps you from uh, being uh, all the time anxious. And then scripture also talks about peace from God. And peace from God is basically the same as the peace of God, except for the focus of that phrase is that God is the source. It is the work of God that makes this peace possible. Um, and uh, we have I've got a reference here uh, to verse well I think I'm going to skip that for time's sake <clears throat> but when, uh, when uh, God made the promise of the uh, uh, prophet like Moses uh, he used uh, language I will put my words in his mouth he shall speak to them all that I command him uh, he shall speak in my name, and I my, myself will require it of him. We, we see a uh, connection and a cooperation between Father and Son, God the Father and God the Son. Uh, so, um, any, any thoughts about any of that? Any questions? Okay, <laughs> thank you. That's exactly the kind of critique I'm looking for. Fast <laughs> thank, 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 Thanks for being hard-hitting. All right, so we go on to the next theme, which is uh, the uh, based on the Greeks seeking an audience with him. And th- this uh, another reason the Logos came. He came to save the Gentile nations. And uh, we've already touched on that before. Uh, oh, part of the reading was, uh, uh, and also anyone who will come 
to seek him out. A very bad paraphrase, but um, this this touches on Isaiah forty nine five through six, one of my favorite little passages. And now the Lord says, "He who formed me from the womb will to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him." For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this is what he is doing here as uh, the Greeks seek an audience with him. Uh, Dick, if you could read verses 20 through 23. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, or asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so, as usual, Jesus has kind of a cryptic answer. But compare it to the answer that he gave to Mary in Cana or to his brothers as they were preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, he's basically saying, this is the hour. This is my Passover. Uh, uh, Nick, if you could read uh, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, focus here in this verse on the word anyone. It is anyone, not any Jew or not any Israelite, but anyone. And we get this also in uh, um, uh, verses 45 through 47. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Yeah, so anyone. Again, this, this idea of anyone can come, and he, and he you know, ties it up in a bow, because he's there to save the whole, whole world. Uh I guess any, anyone means anyone. Anyone. That's the word study on anyone. <laughs> I think it could mean anyone. Anyone who believes. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's a great word. Because it? it's got one in it. But it's got anyone. And of course, this is, this is uh and we see in, in Acts that this is just an unbelievable thing for the Jewish nation to have to accept. Uh, so much so, I mean, they couldn't have cared less about Gentiles through their whole, whole, whole history. But all of a sudden, they were desperate to keep them from hearing the word of Christ and believing in him uh, in the book of Acts. So... Um, in this uh, passage about the Greeks coming in and asking to see Jesus, uh, he, Jesus is usually, I mean, he usually engages with people. But mm-hmm. here, as you say, it seems the reason is that his hour has come. So, I mean, he's got other things that he might be about. 
Well, it, if you if you compare him to the Syrophoenician woman, yeah, uh, the Greeks to the, her, he was very hesitant to engage with her. Yeah, and she talked him into it, and for a good word, <laughs> he rewarded her. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't. I don't think. I mean, there's no record of him actually talking to this group of Greeks. No. But uh, I don't really see it as a rejection. No. I he's don't, he's no. he's saying, this is abs- This is no. the time. This is the hour. And uh, you know, I'm going to draw all men to me. In fact, I think we got this coming up. It, it may not be in this chapter, but. Uh, um, it's But this is this is yeah. So, but this is this is all part of what it means to be God the Son. You know, you're it's it's not enough just to save Judah. You're going to be the savior of the entire world. Um, Nick, if you could read twenty eight through thirty, we'll we'll finish up here as quick as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
He touches on judgment. He touches on belief and rejection. And these are all the provinces of deity. All of this is stuff that belongs to deity. So again, he is, he is, John is finishing up this chapter, or what became the end of the chapter, with uh, kind of a long laundry list of things that belong to God the Son. And verse 32 is what I was mentioning uh, a minute ago. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So we see here belief in abundance through rejection. So, you know, Christ defeats death by using death. He uh, creates a massive amount of belief through the rejection of the cross. So, God the Son. Uh, so, if, uh, if there's any, that's it for, for chapter thir- uh, 12. It, any other closing it, comments? Is it the Son of Man came not to judge the world, but to save it, and then the Son of God comes to judge the world? I don't think you should separate them. I don't. One advent versus the other. One advent versus the other. I mean, he was always son of man and he was always son of God. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good, necessarily a, a good separation to try to make. I'm not trying to make it. It gets my attention that Jesus himself said he came not to judge the world. Mm-hmm. But I thought at the end, he comes to judge the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... it's uh, um, Why did he say that right at that point? He well, he says it's. Well, he he. But he says it is my words that will be your judge, right? Yes. Oh. Well, I think David's right. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking you're right. Um, it's it's not conflating his identity. It's conflating. It's 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 the difference between his identity. Yeah. And and really, if you think about the second coming of Christ and judgment upon the earth. It's like every knee's going to bow and every tongue confess. It's like he doesn't even have to judge at that point. You're going to know. Yeah. You're going to be faced. You're going to be your own judge in a sense. You know, you're going to know. You're going to know how horrible you are. Well, and it's and the judgment is going to be based on belief. Yeah. It's not even sin anymore. It's whether you're with Christ or not. How good you are, how good you've been. The question is, what did you do with my son? That's it. You know. Ooh, what a great All right. day that's going to be. Thank you for your teaching. You bet. Thanks for, for listening. Sorry about what you